Galatians 5 this morning, in chapter 5, uh, 6, 1 through 6. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your word preached be a comfort to us where we need comfort and that it confront us where we need confrontation. And I ask that you anchor us more firmly in the grace of Christ as we hear his gospel this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Galatians 5, 1 through 6. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Amen. You may be seated. Some families put a, a lot of pressure on kids to succeed. I think that's especially common like Asian cultures. Um, and the result is oftentimes very driven people uh, and accomplished people. But I think the source of the drive is an anxious quest to obtain approval. And we, we think of God sometimes as a strict father who requires of us perfection, and we too are on an anxious quest to gain his approval. And the result is, of course, a kind of bondage where we're stuck in a cycle. What, uh, we, we can always do more, but everything we do is never good enough. And we're in a prison of, of sort of failed expectations. In his mercy, though, uh, he is a, a truly perfect father and expects perfection. He can't expect anything less. Um, and though we're never close to measuring up, he has provided a means to, uh, his son, Jesus, to, uh, who was perfect, who measured up on our behalf and offers to that we can partake of his perfection. I think the freedom a child experiences when he knows his parents accept him, no matter what his failures or whatever his achievements are, that's the true kind of freedom. And that's the kind of liberation we're meant to experience as God's children in Christ. Freedom from that anxious quest to gain approval. Freedom not to live to try to obtain acceptance, but instead as living out our identity as spirit-born children of God in Christ. And last week we saw that we as believers are like Isaac, uh, children of freedom, children of promise, spirit-born children of God. And Paul wants us here, he's, he wants us to live out that freedom. Um, 
I don't have a precise outline this morning, but I have some loose headings, four of them. So the first point or heading is uh, live out your freedom. Live out your freedom. Uh, the ancient Italians, Romans and, and um, Sam Knights, they would humiliate conquered soldiers, their opponents, by making them walk under or pass under a a yoke. A yoke being the thing that ties oxen together that you pull the cart, of course. Um, Defeated soldiers would have to stoop. They'd hold it low, so they would have to stoop under the yoke. Extremely humiliating. Imagine a proud, patriotic Roman soldier being forced to stoop to go under a yoke. And that, that happened, actually. At one point, the Samnites got an upper hand over the Romans in their back and forth, and they conquered the Romans 300s B.C., and they, they made the Romans go under the yoke. It was really a, making them taste a bit of their own medicine. Uh, but why a yoke? Why would they pick that object? A yoke symbolizes servitude. It, it, it tells the defeated people, we're your new Lord and Master. We call the shots. You obey us. It's a symbol of servitude. The Bible uses that same image of the yoke to represent slavery and bondage. Um, God tells the people, for example, in Leviticus, that when he brought them out of Egypt, he broke the bars of their yoke and made them to walk erect. The same language is applied to the law in Scripture. I read a great example last week from Acts 15. Uh, Peter calls the law a yoke that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. Paul says in verse 1 that Jesus has set us free from that yoke. Verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Jesus did not liberate us so we can live like slaves. I mean, imagine being liberated from a Nazi death camp and saying, I'll stay. I'll stay here. To live as free, you must leave your bondage. Freedom from oppression and tyranny are not freedom if you continue to live under the control of the oppressor. Freedom from guilt and shame from sin are not freedom from guilt and shame if those things continue to control you. Freedom from addiction is not freedom if you continue to return to the addiction. Freedom is not freedom unless it's lived out. (laughs) That seems pretty obvious, pretty basic. These Galatians had been liberated, but they're being pressured to return, to return to the death camp. They're under pressure, Paul says, to submit again to the yoke of slavery. These false teachers want them to strap back on that that burden that no one can bear. And Paul charges them here, stand firm, do not waver, do not go back, do not volunteer your neck again to that yoke of slavery. Abel likes to break into the fridge. Uh, And it makes sense for a one-year-old. Why would you not grab all the cherries out and eat them if they're available? They taste good. They're there. What what more is there to discuss here? (laughs) 
And if he knows there's cherries in there, he's drawn by his natural desires toward that object of his affections. We need Paul's call to live in the freedom of Christ that he won for us because we are drawn like able to the fridge to bondage to our old sin by our natural desires. The more we mature, the more we realize those tasty treats that we used to eat are actually doing us more harm than good. But through our whole lives, we're never going to be totally free from a proclivity to return, to return to Egypt, to return to our old slavery. And part of our problem with freedom is we mistake autonomy for freedom. We think freedom is the ability to do and the opportunity to do whatever we want. And somehow we have the idea that that if we can kind of construct for ourselves a nice little sandcastle of our lives, God will look at it and be impressed and like us more. In our quest for autonomy, though, we forfeit uh, freedom and announce with our actions that we're discontent with the kind of freedom that we've been given in Christ. Real biblical gospel freedom is actually freedom from ourselves. That is freedom from our flesh in Adam. We're liberated from the bondage of sin and spiritual death. We're liberated from that burden of the law that no one's able to bear. That what Paul says is called the covenant of death. It hangs over our heads as a certificate of condemnation. We've been liberated from our total inability to do anything that pleases God to ability in Christ to lay before Him true sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. So real biblical freedom is freedom not to do what we want, but that God does what He wants in us. So our first point there is, is to live out your freedom. That if, if, if you've been freed, live like it. And Paul wants us to understand that self-reliance is bondage. And that's our second point here. So self-reliance is bondage. For Paul, accepting circumcision is tantamount to looking our liberator in the face and, and saying... I'll stay. I'll stay where I am. Thank you for liberating me. But I don't want your help. I'll free myself. And we so badly want to have a hand in our own salvation to to contribute something. The Jews in, in the Nazi death camps didn't have any hope of escape. And then one day, they were liberated. They were set free. Notice I'm using the passive voice. They were liberated and set free. They didn't have to grab a rope and someone pulled them out over the fence or, or dig a tunnel. They were liberated. Christ liberated us. He, he freed us from our bondage to the law. You notice in verse 1 he says to Gentile people, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Do not submit again. An interesting word. It's not like Hebrews where the Jews are wanting to go back to Judaism here. These are Gentiles primarily. But whether Jew or Gentile, we are all bound by the same thing and always want to go back. And that same thing is trying to make ourselves acceptable before God on our own two feet, our own self reliant actions. So the Galatian heretics um, were pushing circumcision 
as a means of approach to God. Circumcision itself isn't the issue. If it was, Paul himself would have to say, I'm severed from Christ. And Timothy, who I circumcised, is severed from Christ. It's that they were trying to make it a means of approach to God. They were attaching meritorious significance to circumcision so that it played a part in their justification. He condemns that doctrine here with unequivocal language in in verse 4. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. That's a powerful word picture. You are severed from Christ. With all this talk about circumcision. It's like if you cut off your flesh in order to be brought into Christ, you're actually the flesh that is removed from Christ. You are severed from Christ. And we can spit on a fine pearl or throw it in the mud, um, but it's no less a fine pearl. And grace will always be a, a precious treasure, even if we cast it off as worthless. When we take some of our salvation on ourselves, it shows just how much we do not value God's grace. He tells them, you have fallen away from grace. You're not looking upon God's unmerited favor as though it were an object of supreme value to you anymore. Your gaze has shifted to this dressed up pile of dung. They would object, probably. Well, we trust in Christ for our justification. But, uh, of course, uh, look at all the history. Did you not read Genesis 17? Don't you have to be circumcised to be a son of Abraham? He says emphatically, and here with apostolic authority, he says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. I think this is why the Reformation solas are so precious to us. Because it's not that Rome rejected Scripture as authoritative or grace or Christ's sacrifice or the glory of God or faith, but that they made additions. Scripture and tradition, grace and works, Christ's sacrifice and our merits. So those alones, those solas, are so critical. As soon as we remove the alones, we're advocating a Christ plus theology, a grace plus theology. And Christ plus and grace plus theologies are myths. They're they're phantom doctrines. They look nice, but reach out and touch them, and there's nothing there. They're holograms generated by the deceiver. It's an either-or situation. Every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. Either you rely on yourself to make yourself pretty enough that God accepts you, or you rest entirely on Christ and His grace to reconcile you to God. So our second point there, self-reliance is bondage. That, that's true. That's, that's what Christ has liberated us from. Now in contrast to falling away from grace through self-reliance, Paul says that believers look forward to a righteousness that comes from outside of themselves, which is true, true freedom. Um, and that, that's the third point, is that we look forward 
to righteousness. We look forward to righteousness. Cohen this week was frustrated with the ongoing nature of sin. I asked him if I could share this story. Uh, And he was asking me why we keep sinning. And I explained to him, uh, using the catechism, that all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression. That we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. And that sin is going to be a struggle for the rest of his life and my life. And his response was... Well, that's not fun. (laughs) He hit it on the head, didn't he? (laughs) The only hope I could give him, you know, I I want to comfort him. I want to say, you can do it. You can can conquer it. The only hope I could give him is the verse we've been learning at bedtime right now, which I've quoted here a hundred times, to set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think I added 1 John 3, 2. When He appears, you shall be like Him. Not sooner. When He appears, you shall be like Him. That's the testimony of Scripture, that grace is an already not yet reality. The grace we have in Christ is initiated, but not yet consummated. There's a great deal yet to be anticipated. on that day when Jesus comes back that day of glorification when we'll finally hear in the courtroom justified, righteous we'll hear that verdict we know it's true now but we'll hear the verdict it's on that day we'll be finally rid of sin and made to be like Jesus and that's the testimony of this passage here too in verse 5 in contrast to the vain efforts to obtain a present righteousness through works of the law Paul says in verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We can't produce justifying righteousness here and now. Uh, It's like trying to escape a a death sentence by getting out on good behavior. It's too late. We'll never be rehabilitated in this life to the point where we will be acceptable in God's sight. Instead, we eagerly anticipate the arrival of a righteousness that comes from Christ. And even our, our anticipation doesn't proceed from within, but it comes from without. He says, through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait. We know from Hebrews that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And it's a gift of God that we receive when, when He breathes new life into these, this, this bag of bones, then we have faith, then we believe. When we're born again, when we receive the Holy Spirit, we're made to stop believing in our own abilities to make things right in the world, and we begin to believe and rest upon the promises of God instead. And what better way to break the yoke of bondage than that? That's the title of this sermon, Breaking the Yoke of Bondage. That we know the outcome of our court date. Even if we screw up, if we believe in Christ, we know the outcome of our court date. We know the verdict. It'd be righteous. We know where we stand with the Father in Christ. And that, that's confidence, that's freedom. The freedom of knowing our justification is not contingent on how well we do. 
the freedom to live a life of obedience without having the, the pressure to kind of keep tallies, something to present to God on Judgment Day. So we do look forward to the hope of righteousness. That was our third point. And if righteousness is something, an object of, of primarily future hope, a future positive verdict, uh, what then of living a life that is pleasing to God now in the here and now? That, that's the fourth point, is that faith works through love. Faith works through love. You can hear the, the, his opponents objecting, Paul's opponents. Uh, this freedom you preach, Paul, it sounds great. But what about the here and now? What about righteousness? Are we not called to be righteous? Aren't we not called to be holy? And it's an important question because we are called to be holy. And one he will address further on in the epistle more where he roots Christian holiness and Christian love in the very freedom he's talking about. That's, that's the source of those things. All good fruit in the Christian life is a product of the gospel applied to believers by the Holy Spirit. Now he preempts that discussion here by pointing out it's our freedom from the law that allows us to make this life count. And in fact, it's that very freedom which enables us to hope in our future righteousness as well. He says in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So what what does avail something? I like that word better than count. It avails. Um, it produces something. What does avail something in terms of a life lived pleasing before God in Christ is faith working through love. We know well the line from Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please God. But you notice right away as you read that, that, that hall of faith, faith is not a mere state of mind, but all of these believers followed belief with expression of that belief. Faith is expressed through action. And that's why the Apostle James pointed out, a faith without works is a dead faith. Faith that is working through love avails something. This verse has been twisted to say that it is in fact our faith together with our works that justify. But the Reformation principle holds true to Scripture. Faith alone. Faith alone is the basis of our justification. And faith is never alone, but it is faith and not our works that justify us. For Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, I noticed many interpreters got hung up on this verse, trying to sort all this out. The way that faith working through love in some way avails something before God. Um, and I think the problem is they're trying to apply that to justification. Uh, and I think we should think carefully about what Paul is saying here. He, he says, in Christ Jesus, these ceremonies count for nothing but only faith working for love. So we're already here talking about a state of being in Christ Jesus, already justified. We're not trying to, it doesn't avail anything to earn us a status in Christ because he says we're already in Christ Jesus. It is for those people who are in Christ Jesus, who are already guaranteed their courtroom verdict of righteousness, who already possess justification, for whom faith working through love avails something. 
And I think Westminster uh, chapter 16, section 6, gets at the kind of thing that, that faith working through love avails. It says, uh, this is the section on, on good works, the chapter on good works. Yet notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable or unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. So I think that's what he's saying, is that faith... uh, working through love avails something in Christ. That counts for something as a life lived pleasing before God, not of ourselves, but in Christ. And and that's freedom. Knowing our standing before God doesn't depend on circumcision or uncircumcision, because you could boast in uncircumcision too. But that all of our good works are done as a fruit of of a spirit-born root that make it possible for us to rest secure in the hope of a coming verdict of righteousness. So we are not on an anxious quest to please God because we know in Christ uh, He doesn't expect us to keep those laws to please Him or He knows we can't. And that whatever good we do avails something in Christ. So it's freedom, really, that liberates us from the law and enables us to fulfill the law. It's because we're born of the Spirit, too, that we have faith and love. Um, And isn't that the promise of the New Covenant? The law will be written on our hearts. What's the summary of law that we just read about? Love. That would be weird if he said, faith working through love. That's like saying, faith working through law. Unless we have the promise of the new covenant, that the Spirit would write the law on our hearts if we're regenerated. In fact, in chapter 6, we have Paul, where he says the exact same things he says here in in verse 6 of chapter 5, but he substitutes the new birth. He says in verse 15 of chapter 6, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation those things are parallel faith working through love and a new creation are parallel in our freedom in Christ faith working through love avails something to make us pleasing to God in Christ so we are spiritually reborn children of freedom and of promise Christ has set us free so he he wants us to live in that freedom setting aside the bondage of self-reliance and eagerly anticipating the hope of a righteousness that is to come that final courtroom verdict and now we labor in the glory of God and in the freedom of knowing that faith working through love can avail much in Christ The yoke of slavery is broken. Live in freedom. Amen.